Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 173 of the show, and it's Wednesday the 22nd of November 2023 as I record this. I am just back from a wonderful trip to Helsinki, which included refreshing my pistol skills using a mint-condition 1980s vintage Browning high-power 9mm, a gloriously well-made gun. Like Every time you shoot it, the slide racks back and goes straight back where it's supposed to be with just this absolutely no play. It is completely unlike shooting one of those Tupperware Glocks. Just glorious. Um, I was also catching up with friends and godchildren and teaching a seminar for Auri Posso, who you may recall from episode 130 of the show. We had an excellent time. Uh, The seminar went really well. Nice to meet a bunch of new students and a couple of old ones. And thanks to Auri for organizing it. Then last Saturday, I went even further afield into the wilds of snowy Norfolk or Muddy Norfolk as it was, for a bronze sword casting day with Dr. James Dilley of ancientcraft.co.uk. I should perhaps point out that I live in Suffolk, and Norfolk is the next door county, and this was a 90-minute drive, so technically is not that far, um, not certainly not as far as going to Helsinki, but there is an age-old, I mean centuries-old, rivalry between Suffolk and Norfolk, and People in Suffolk think the people in Norfolk, I don't know, have six toes on each foot. And people in Norfolk think people in Suffolk are all a bit stupid. It's one of those classic, um, no one takes it terribly seriously sort of prejudices, which you sort of, when you, when you move to a place, you pick these things up. In the wilds of Norfolk, we had a fantastic time. Um, it began with an introduction to the weapons and technology of prehistory and ending with a detailed look at some bronze artifacts. And James had a bunch of bronze sword fragments just sitting on the table for us to pick up and play with, uh, which was very cool. Um, I had already made my own template based on measurements of a sword in the British Museum, and it came out a lot chunkier than the models that James had in the workshop, but we had a go. Um, And the whole thing, it, it turned out a lot bigger than it should have been. So I think... Um, I probably made the mold, uh, the, the, the model a bit too big, sort of leaving a little bit of too much extra wood on it to account for like casting loss and that kind of thing. So I, if I do, if I use that model again, I'm going to need to trim it down a bit. Um, cause mine, the sword that it's based on, it weighs about 800 grams and mine came out at about 1,400 grams. So there's an extra 600 grams of bronze on my sword that doesn't belong on the original. So I need to um, (laughs) adjust the template. But um, I also cast another slimmer sword using one of James's models and it came out much cleaner. And I'll be grinding them, polishing them, adding hilts, making them pretty. And I'll put pictures in the newsletter as and when they're done. And I'm in no rush to do it. This is just a fun project. There were a couple of other students on the course, which made things interesting. So Matthew was a retired geologist who is now a furniture maker. So we were geeking out about the geology of um, prehistoric mining. And of course, he and I were geeking out a little bit about woodworky stuff. And Richard, who is a retired botanist who now runs courses in scythe maintenance and use. So you can just imagine the um, 
just extraordinary levels of sort of overlapping geekdoms there. Uh, geology, craft, sharpening, cutting, woodwork, historical, sword stuff. It was, yeah, lovely day. Uh, one major highlight was Richard was describing teaching beginners to scythe, which he does quite a lot. And he borrowed a basic grounding exercise from some book on medieval longsword. And when he like described the exercise, I was like, that's my book. And it turned out to be The Swordsman's Companion, page 72 to 74, if you want to look it up. Um, he was as astonished as I was to find out that it was my book. And it completely made my day. It was already a great day, but having somebody who is using one of my old books to teach people how to scythe better, um, that just tickled me pink. I am currently preparing for traveling to Portugal for the Panoplia Iberica. This will be my first time visiting Portugal and my first time at this particular event. You can look it up at Panoplia Iberica. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-I-A-I-B-E-R-I-C-A dot wordpress dot com. Um, if you'd like to look it up, I'm teaching at least a couple of classes. Uh, a lecture on how to make a living as a historical martial arts instructor and a rapier class on using the dagger in the offhand. Um, this is actually going to be the first time, this is actually going to be the first time I've taught a session on how to make a living in this field, even though I've been making a living in this field since 2001. So um, it's interesting to, to see how the things that people are asking for as the community develops, as more people start making a living doing this, um, those of us with a bit of experience in the field, that experience becomes more useful to people. It looks like it's going to be a really great event, and I will tell you all about it um, in the whichever <laughs> the first podcast episode after I get back, um, which will be sometime in December. Without further ado, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Sally Pointer, who is a freelance heritage educator, archaeologist, and presenter of traditional skills and historic crafts. She is also an author and an experimental archaeology MSc student at Exeter University. She is also a hedge botherer. And yes, we will get into what a hedge botherer is in the interview. So without further ado, Sally, welcome to the show. I'm very happy to be here. And whereabouts in the world are you? These days I'm near Hereford, but I have moved around a fair bit, spent a lot of years okay. up the Welsh Valleys, but as a child, I even spent several years in the Middle East, so I've, I, I get around a bit. Okay, so what made you settle on Hereford? It was more of a case that a few years ago we needed to com combine households with my parents to help with St Dad's care needs, and ah, okay. we ended up with a rambling pile in the middle of nowhere with room for us and cats and workshops, and yeah, yeah, it's great. My end is completely full of um, buckets of mud, half-tanned hides, <laughs> stone spear points, mum's end is tidy, the cats go to whoever thinks they're going to feed them most. Right, fair enough. That, that's actually a good way to do it. So you have pots of mud. Is it special mud? <laughs> Always. Isn't everybody's mud special? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, what's special about your mud? So I tend to accumulate things that are going to be useful for different projects. So I've got boxes that have got bits of interesting ochres in them. I've got things that are a nice grade for 
polishing back bits of metal. There are some that you can use for dyes. Uh, to be perfectly honest, there are some bits where I just really could have done with cleaning my boots earlier and they're evolving new life forms all by myself. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. I've never heard of using mud to clean metal. Actually, if I think about it, um, you can get you can use it like abrasive powders, which you mix yes. with water to create a slurry. And yes. I guess that is actually mud. It's the huh. same thing. So jeweler's rouge you'd use for the very finest polishing on things yeah. is is just different grades of, of red ochres. You can use some coarser sandstones. Well, th- think about polishing. Um, think about, uh, um, what's the word? Sharpening stones. Completely losing yeah. the plot there. Um, so think about when you're working through um, putting edges on swords traditionally. You know, today mm-hmm. we have amazing sharpening blocks, but you go back far enough in time and it's about finding the right piece of stone and yeah. maybe using it with a little bit of water. As soon as that starts breaking down, you're, you're creating mud. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. And actually, when using a, a water stone, what you're supposed to do is build up a slurry on the stone, and it's the slurry that actually polishes the edge. And exactly. think about it. My my granny had a housekeeper, because this is back in like the 40s and 50s, um, and she used to sharpen the kitchen knives on the back step. Yes. Yes, I've come across <laughs> that as well. Yeah. Uh, you've like got, have got to have a right sort of back step for that. They don't make back steps the way they used to. <laughs> <laughs> no, the stone has to be just the right kind of fineness. Mm. Um, huh. Okay. So... Clearly, you are very much into like doing stuff with your hands. Um, how did you get into experimental archaeology in particular? It's something that I think had been coming for a long time. I spent several years as a child out in the Middle East. And what you did at the weekend was you persuaded your dad to load up a jeep with buckets of water and things and you drove out into the deep desert and you either went looking for dinosaur bones or if you were very lucky the sands would shift you'd see uh a, something like a prehistoric campsite you'd see the fireplace and around it there'd be a scatter of stone flakes where somebody had sat and made tools and then moved off and you could pick up these arrowheads and you could also see the waste flakes that had been left behind and like most children, as soon as you see that sort of thing, you want to know how it works. You want to have a go. Right. And you, you bash rocks together and you don't get very far or maybe you cut your finger. But you you get this idea that all of these objects are made. All of these objects come from somewhere. And that slowly develops into a sense, if you want to understand the past, you would need to understand how people coped with the the everyday things and making things and trying them out is one of the best ways of understanding what's time consuming what's precious what's something that you can only really do when you've got downtime and the sorts of things that you can do in an absolute rush because you desperately need something at this moment and it's all experimentation but it's it's helping us learn okay there's a lot to unpack there so Okay, so out in the Middle East, you could just get in a Jeep and go off and find a Stone Age campsite just sitting there in the desert. Yeah, and it would probably have dinosaur bones sitting next to it just to really confuse the issue. It's it's a unique place. I don't know of archaeology, anything quite like it elsewhere. As a child, you take that very much for granted. But once we came back to the UK, I was very fortunate to have the sorts of parents if I said, I'm interested in, oh, I don't know, 
dyeing fabrics with plants or I'm interested in you know, brewing an interesting potion or something, they'd say, well, here's an old saucepan, make a fire at the bottom of the garden, shout if you hurt yourself. And right. would, would, would it encourage us to learn by doing things. And I, I think I was very lucky in that. So do you actually have like a collection of dinosaur bones and, and things that you found in the desert? We do, yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. We actually had a guest on the show whose job is to um, help basically get dinosaur bones out of the ground and into the museum. Um, she she works for one of the museums in Chicago and she's she's a paleontologist who does that like for a living <laughs> It's like, but you know, as a as a school kid, you just kind of wander out and pick one up, and brilliant! I'll take it yeah. home, off you go. Yeah, and, and children are very, very good at spotting dinosaur bones. For a lot of years, I ran an education gallery for the Museum of Wales, and one of my jobs was to help field inquiries. And almost every single Saturday, I'd have a small child come in with a shoebox with interesting bones in it, and right. sometimes, sometimes they were dinosaur. You never knew. Wow. Ah. Um, so how do you tell a dinosaur bone from a very old chicken bone? It's not it's not always easy. If you're lucky, things are properly fossilised. You can clearly tell that they've been converted into stone. It's a bit of a greyer area if somebody brings in something that's from more recent prehistory, where the bone might be very, very old, but it hasn't gone through fossilisation. Uh, I do remember somebody once bringing me in a bone and saying, I found this. I think it's really, really old. And I said to them, oh, gosh, that looks really, really fragile. As they handed it over to the desk to me, and the second it touched my hands, it broke into about 300 pieces. Oh, God. And I don't think we ever did work out what exactly it had been because it was in too many pieces. I was mortified and had to go for a nice yeah. quiet sit down in a dark corner for a while afterwards. Um, and I think they thought I'd just willfully broken their amazing treasure. And it was just that it was so brittle and so fragile that there was there was no hope for it. It was basically shaped sand at that point. Yeah. Yeah, nothing holding it together. Wow. Um, and speaking of bones, I can see uh, over your left shoulder... Um, a skull. Is, is that an old friend or? He's, he's a fake one. Uh, he goes uh, <laughs> okay. to school workshops and things with me because, ah, you know, okay. it's sort of slightly frowned on taking real skulls into see small children these days. Don't know why. That's very strange because they love that sort of stuff. Like yeah. when we were staying in Italy uh, about seven years ago and my kids were quite little, like six and eight, I think. We went into the um, the cathedral at Pisa, which the Leaning Tower is next to, and there is a saint in a glass coffin who's been there for about 500 years. San Raniero, I think his name was, right? And my kids were completely not terribly impressed by the whole cathedral, stone building, boring, right? But there was a dead body. That was awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And like holding holding up the little ones so that she could actually see the dead body properly. <laughs> she was fascinated. And, and, and you have all those questions then about is it real? And and you know, what does real yeah. mean? That yes it's yes it's real, but it's it's not alive anymore, but it did used to be a real person. Yeah. Yeah, and we get that sort of question a lot. Like um one one question I get asked an astonishing number of times when I'm you know, carrying a sword around. Is that sword real? Mm. And it's like, no, it's a figment of your imagination. What do you think it is? It's like, ah, ah, 
But I think people get very confused between the idea of, is it original, meaning is it of the period that it represents? Yeah. Or is it pretty much exactly the same thing, but we made it recently? And this yeah. is something we have we have a lot of with archaeology, particularly on the public interpretation side, this whole question of, of is it authentic, which is a terrible word because it doesn't really mean anything or it only means something yeah. in context. But what people are generally asking is, is this thing you are showing me from thousands of years ago or is it something that you made yesterday to the best to of your knowledge, like the same way that they made it thousands of yeah. years ago. And in itself, that's, that's an amazing conversation to have. That's, with a, people. that's a good question. Yeah. But I think when, with the sword thing, I think when most people are, cause I'm not usually carrying around anything that even looks antique, right? They're all shiny. Um, cause then they're, they're relatively new. Uh, I think the question they're really asking is, is it sharp? Mm. But they don't quite know how to formulate it. Yeah. And they're kind of okay with somebody carrying around a blunt sword and they're not, so comfortable with people carrying around a sharp sword. Although, I mean, you can murder somebody with a blunt sword quite easily. Mm. So, um, huh. So, okay, I do have to ask, because after the intro, I think the average listener is probably a bit confused. What is a hedge botherer? Ah, well, this started off as a joke an awful lot of years ago. So I have always been one of those people who takes myself off for long walks, pokes around in hedges. It's a little bit to do with foraging, but it's actually much more about, do I recognise all the species that are in the hedge? What are the birds up to? Can I spot any pixies? Is there any interesting bits of wood I can take home? And my late husband started teasing me about it. And you'll occasionally hear veterinarians referred to as dog botherers. So he said, oh, you're off out hedge bothering again. So the ah, poor hedges, okay. there they are, minding their own business. And there's you poking them, talking to the birds, seeing what the slugs are up to. Anytime anybody drives down the lane, they see really just the back half of you and your welly is sticking out of a hedge, wondering what's, <laughs> what's going on. So you're, you're clearly hedge bothering. And you know, eventually okay. we all start being more visible on the internet. And I'd start sharing pictures of things I'd found whilst hedge bothering. And it's it's taken off a little bit. And there are now quite a lot of people right, right, right around the world who will refer to going out for a good poke around in the woods as Hedge bothering, which I think is just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, okay. My mind hiccuped on the interesting bits of wood to take home. Because whenever we went anywhere when I was a kid, my parents would have to negotiate me down from about 200 sticks of various degrees of excellence down to one or two that would fit in the back of the Land Rover. So, yeah. So, you're, you're still dragging interesting bits of wood home with you. Of course. And... One particular use are for handles. So axes, for example, right. if you have, say, a prehistoric axe with a handle that's from a naturally shaped piece of tree, it's got to be a really specific shape. And yeah. once you start looking for these things, you realize that they're not that easy to find. So mm. it becomes something you'd watch for almost obsessively. You're going along the hedges in the wind to go, oh, is that the right shape? No, not quite. Oh, that's the right shape. Oh, but it's a really rubbish species it wouldn't be very strong uh because the last thing you want to do is hit something with a 
bronze axe and have the have the wood shatter. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's, it becomes it becomes something that you tune into and watch out for. Yeah, I, I was very much into traditional bow making for quite a while, and it trains you to look at trees as sort of bows in embryo, and like ah uh, yeah okay interesting and. Yeah, you, I guess people who do, for example, dressmaking have the same thing. Like when they're walking around and seeing people wearing dresses, they're like, oh, that's how they did the hem on that one. Definitely. So you get this sort of, you, your eye just tunes into these things. And, and like, you know, thinking about like how they used to build houses and how they used to build ships, there are very specific tree formations that were desirable for particular bits of the house. Like the absolute best way to, um, have a well, what do you call it the gable is if you have basically the crotch of a large tree upside down because then all the grain is going in the right directions and it's super strong and will last literally like 600 years there's one yeah. um, like a 10 minute walk from my house there's a there's a house that's been built that way and you can still see the timbers on the side and it's like that grew that way that is, that's not just being hacked to pieces that's, that's so all the grain is going the right way it's fantastic and those sorts um, of things I absolutely love. I love watching for these things. And it's that overlap between things that grew in nature and things that people have made use of are, are very fundamental to an awful lot of the things I do. Yeah, and like all of the stuff that you're working with, because it's sort of pre-industrial revolution, is it might be cultivated like firewood was cultivated, but it's not. Um, it's, it's not being produced as a raw material. It's just a raw material that's lying around, which is, yeah, firewood's fire an interesting lot. one though. Something that I hadn't thought about a lot of until fairly recently was just how critical firewood management is, even back into fairly distant prehistory. Um, yeah. one of the reasons why we stay mobile hunter-gatherers for such a long time is that if, if you stay in one place you use up all the firewood really quickly it's not right. just about game resources or forageable plants it's about wood particularly if you're in the colder parts of of prehistory so there's a, there's quite strong evidence even mesolithic groups are not necessarily coppicing and things, but they are actively managing firewood resources. They use up all the dead wood in an area, open out clearings. That allows new grass, which brings in animals for a while. So the hunting's great. But after a little while, new growth starts coming back in. You've used up all the dead firewood. Time to move on to a new area, start the cycle again. Might take a generation to come back round to that spot. And that's idea that we're we're altering our landscape for, from incredibly early dates within what we today think of as being a very basic lifestyle just just blew my mind I, you know there's there's this sort of idea that basically stone age people were rather stupid sitting on a log bashing rocks together right and it's it's you know we have like expressions like you know being a caveman um, and when you look at some of the artifacts they've created like like beads for example stitched to a that were almost certainly stitched to some piece of clothing that's now disappeared but you can see the beads in the pattern when you find the grave it's like this is not a culture that had um, 
no spare time. Yeah. Because they were all the time just running after, I don't know, Willy Mammoth or whatever, right? They have this really sophisticated kind of material culture given the infancy of technology at the time. They have really simple tools. But like, you know, that... I'm thinking of that, that absolute breakthrough where they figured out that this this kind of clay pot thing with holes in it wasn't a cheese strainer. You turn it upside down and you put bits of wooden stuff in the bottom of it and you've got a Bunsen burner so they could solder stuff. <laughs> right? And that's like, I don't know, how many thousands of years ago? Um, yeah. So what, what's one the... Of, one of the things I think... Sorry, I was going to say that one of the things I think is really interesting to remember is that certainly within the last... 50, 100,000 years, we are biologically the same people as them. Yeah. Physically, anything you or I could do, in theory, they could do. Anything they could do, physically, we can do. However, we are not culturally the same. No. We would seriously struggle to understand the world that they inhabit and the way they think about things. Uh, they, I'm sure, would be completely baffled by the way we approach life. But basically... The needs are the same. We want, we want to be warm. We want to be fed. We want somebody to snuggle up to by the campfire. We want, we want the nice things in life. And we have really good evidence that people, as far back as we've been modern humans, have put time into, into the nice stuff, not just the survival stuff. Yeah, I, mean, I think like the, one of the oldest minds in existence is about seventy thousand years old. And it is for ochre, which has its only function is to make things red, mm. <laughs> right? So they're, they're, you know, making paints and probably makeup and things like that 70,000 years ago. And they're, they're not just, you know, picking stuff up off the ground. They're actually digging a mine to get this stuff out so that they can make themselves pretty. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so slight left turn. Um, you have a book on the mythology of herbs. What is the mythology of herbs? Okay. So this was a book that I wrote a very great many years ago. It's long since out of print, and that's probably a good thing, because in hindsight, what took me a year or two to write at the time, I could probably do in two or three days with the benefits of the internet these days. What I was trying to look at at the time was all of the stories that we could find about plants. Today, we tend to be very, very pragmatic about plants. You look at it and go, it's a lettuce. It's good for us. It helps us lose weight. You go back in time a little bit further and people say, oh, well, the, the shape of this plant, the shape of this plant tells you what it's useful for. Or if you pick this plant on a particular saint's day or under a certain phase of the moon, it's going to have different associations or here is a plant that is clearly associated with elves because every time my cattle are near it, they get blistered ears and they become sick. And these are stories that tell us about how people view the world and how they make sense of medicinal uh, properties or um, psychosomatic properties or just the way that... But, biodiversity works in the days before we had formal science and it's about stories and they're stories that connect people to 
plants and the natural world, but they tell us about how people's brains tick. Uh, this idea about um, the doctrine of signatures. So you've probably come across this with the, the sword plaything, that there's a number of plants that because they have slightly toothed edges and happen to be good for staunching wounds. Well, they're clearly battlefield herbs and the shape tells you that. And the amazing thing is they're not wrong. It's not it's not why the plant works, but it just happens that that particular family of plants all have certain similarities in shape. And they happen to look like a knife with a serrated edge. Therefore, they are brilliant for when you cut yourself. It, the logic is bonkers, but it still works. Uh, any plans to update the book and reissue it? Because it does sound interesting. I, I might at some point. It, it does need an overhaul. So it, was, it was written a very great many years ago. I could certainly do better with it. And I've got a lot more stories to tell now because I keep finding out things about plants and how people interact with them. So, yes, I'll put, I'll put it on the list. Excellent. Good. Okay. I'm sure the listeners will be thrilled because I actually do this quite a lot. Like guests come on and they, they have like an interesting product. And I'm like, you really should make a book out of that because people want to read that book. And occasionally, occasionally, um, the guest comes back on the show one or two years later to plug the new book. So just a little hint there, a little hint. Um, okay, so you have this YouTube channel where you're mm -hmm. basically um, explaining how to make textiles out of nettles, making pasta out of acorn flour, um, and like a million other things but i did notice when i was going through them that you don't seem to have an awful lot on weapons ah well i might not have anything specifically on weapons but i think it does all tie in there because if you want to understand why people defend themselves go out to hunt go out to basically be really really horrible to other human beings you've got to understand what it is in day-to-day -day life that's important to them and when you start understanding the efforts that people go to to make their clothes nice, to eat interesting food, to gather resources and store them and process them, then you've got a bit more of an understanding about just why people are prepared to go to the lengths that they go to with weapons to either defend them or nab them off somebody else. So I would argue that to a point... That does come into it, even though I may not talk about it specifically. But there are also other areas that probably do have overlap. So I did a video not too long ago. And it was only a very, very short one on different ways of putting string together. So we right. were looking at plies and how they go together. But look at bowstrings. You can yeah, make a two-ply piece of cordage. And yes, it'll work as a bowstring. We have archaeological examples that probably are bowstrings that are made in two-ply. But if a bowstring goes ping on you, it does it very instantly. And at the very least, you've spoiled your shot. But in the worst case scenario, it flicks you in the nose or knocks your eye out or you know, whatever. It does something really, really horrible to you. Yeah, it can break the bow too. You can. If you make your bowstring out of three plies of cordage put together carefully... You've got a couple of different things happening. If one strand breaks, you've got two more to take the strain. You'll probably be able to finish that shot before it all goes horribly pear-shaped on you. But also, 
three plies will distribute the kinetic energy that's stored in the bow much more efficiently down the string, which gives you more control over your shot, is going to be a better bow for having a decent piece of string on it. So it all comes down to string. String is very important stuff. Well, that's very true. And and yes, there is a plausible connection between general string making and bow making string in particular, or bow strings in particular. Um, have you come across the work of uh, Tim Baker, who is a bow maker in the United States? He I know the fun- name. I don't think I've looked in any detail. In, in one of the earlier volumes of the traditional Bowyer's Bible, he has an article on string making, right, which is absolutely fascinating. He also has an article on making a Stone Age bow, where they literally, they did it all with stone technology. They took down the tree with stone hand axes and they, they split it using, and, the, and shaped it and everything using stone tools and produced this really nice bow really quickly um, that was certainly like, you know, heavy enough to you know take down a deer no problem um so i don't maybe you should have a look at them because the the way that they're constructing the bowstrings is they're they're trying to minimize the springiness of it Mm -hmm. so so you want you want it to be as as twisted as little as possible because you're not trying to make a spring you're trying to make basically a bar but if you don't twist it the fibers don't stick together, so it'll unravel. So you have to have, like, you make your threads with minimal twists, and then you do the counter twists for the plies with mm. minimal twists, and then you put the plies together with minimal twists, and you, but you end up with this string that is, um, like, it's, it's really carefully built to have very specific properties. Um, which, That's fascinating. Uh, I love, I love yeah. that sort of thing. I will definitely follow up on that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll make a note to just to send you a, a re- reminder about. I'll, I'll look it up specifically and send you the exact, exact details because it's it's a fascinating, fascinating thing. He's he is he wrote this fantastic article on bow design and performance, right? Which is about how does the cross section of the bow affect its performance? How does its length affect it? And all the sort of very going into all sorts of varying details of you know if you have this kind of wood available you make a bow that's like this which even though it's not nearly as efficient as it might be if you made it out of a different kind of wood if that better wood is not available you can still make a bow that will take down game that you can eat um using this rather shitty bow wood but, but you have to make all of these design compromises right and he made 600 bows to produce that article (laughs) right (laughs) so he wasn't he wasn't taking anything for granted he was making replicas of literally 600 different bow designs and then shooting an arrow through uh past uh one of those uh, what do you call it um it's a thing that measures the speed of the arrow so you have an objective yes um measure of you know you've got a bow of this size, this weight, so this draw weight, this size of arrow, this weight of arrow, and that's the arrow speed you get. It's it's genius. Um, yeah, it, it's it. It gives you a kind of way of looking at bows that is just. Well, you might enjoy it, and then maybe maybe we can get you into bow making, and maybe from bow making we can get. You, <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. you, you stick with the fibers; it's fine. <laughs> I'm not trying to persuade you to take up martial arts, I promise. 
Um, all right. So, okay. So you're making like textiles from nettles and acorn pasta. Um, mm. How, what do you think would happen? Would you, do you think you actually now have the skills where if you were just sort of dumped in the wilderness somewhere, you'd probably be all right? Yeah, I'd I'd miss tea. I would I would really miss caffeine. We've got very very few plants in Britain that have got caffeine in them, and the ones that we do have really aren't good for you. So so that would be an issue. But apart from that, yes, in principle, I have all the skills necessary. I wouldn't necessarily enjoy it. Not no. full time. <laughs> I've got to the age where you know I quite like being warm and dry and being able to put my yeah. feet up with a good a good book. But yeah, in, in principle, I I could clothe myself from scratch. It would take a while. None of these things are quick. I know, I certainly don't know everything about what's forageable or huntable in the British countryside. But I know enough that in the short term, I wouldn't starve. I think these days, actually, you would struggle to live entirely off the land in Britain. I know there have been experiments done fairly recently where people have tried for a month at a time. And unless unless you have access to good hunting, it's really, really difficult. We just can't get enough protein and fats. Yeah, because so much of the land is taken up with stuff that isn't good to eat, like, you know, soy fields mm. and motorways and cities. And it's not like back when there used to be deep forest all over the place where you have all this biodiversity and there are birds everywhere and little animals and rabbits and what have you running around. And you can, you can sort of work across a much wider range. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've just, I've just spent three days in the woods over the weekend and I was sitting outside my tent in the morning with my first, as you do with my first cup of tea, just watching the birds and the small animals and thinking, Yes, I recognise all the things I'm looking at, but there's actually very, very little here that would be worth catching if I if, right. if I had to. It, yeah. It's, it, yeah. Our, our landscape how would you has ca- changed. How would you catch a bird using pre-industrial technology? Uh, I think probably netting is mm-hmm. one of the most efficient ones. So you work out where they're roosting and then you you net an area sharpish so that they get entangled when they wake up that's probably one of the easiest ones there are recipes for things like bird lime so sticky things that they will yeah. they'll get tangled up in uh pr- yeah probably with the resources that i would have available netting is going to be the most efficient way of doing it yeah and there's also the question if if you're in an area um i mean I'm living in Suffolk, which has like some of the best flint you'll ever find. Flint's everywhere. They even like cover the churches with flint. Um, but if you're in a part of Britain where flint ain't available, you're, you're going to be struggling to make sharp tools, I think. Flint does appear everywhere you get people because people carry it carry exactly we've got yeah we we have trade in flint from incredibly early dates and there are other there are other rocks that will 
will do the trek. So in areas that genuinely don't have access to flint, people are very ingenious about the types of stone that they use. But it is completely remarkable that you can go to areas of Britain, for example, that have no native flint. And on archaeological excavations, you will still find flint tools because people have have made it happen. Them. Yeah, I mean, I've, I read somewhere there's, there's like traceable long distance trade in stone going back like a hundred thousand years mm. yeah because yeah we do like to think that we invented everything last week don't we <laughs> <laughs> um okay so you're you also have a, a, a apparently from the work that you've done a deep interest in perfumes and cosmetics um what is the main difference between the historical cosmetics and the modern industry and by historical let's say let's say pre-white lead Mm, well i should probably start by saying i'm the least likely person to have an interest in this because anyone who's ever met me in person knows i am the scruffiest individual you will ever (laughs) meet uh but this this all came about because donkeys years ago i worked for a year or two at warwick castle and we got vast numbers of visitors, vast. I've never worked anywhere quite like it for volume. And you would have some of the same conversations over and over and over and over again. And one that came up all the time were visitors saying, well, I like the idea of the Middle Ages, but I wouldn't want to live here because I would miss my shower gel, deodorant, mascara, w- w- whatever it was that was that they were yeah. interested in. And I had so many conversations with people that went along the lines of, well, okay, Maybe they didn't have mascara in a tube the way we do today. Maybe we didn't have shower gels and, and jars. But people did have a concept of hygiene. They have a concept of beauty. There are fashions in all of these things that we can trace back through time and that are very much a reflection of the, the similarities rather than the differences between people at different time periods. And I thought to myself, well, I could probably write a little pamphlet about this, you know, a 12-page penny dreadful that I could print <laughs> on my computer, sell at events for some beer money. Well, several years and 70,000-odd words later, it came out as a glossy pared back with lots of experiments. And as you do, you know, that's the way as these you, things yeah, happen. Yeah, that's, and, that's, that's how most books what, get, get done. It, it is, it is. Uh, what fascinated me throughout it is that, yes, there are periods when things change. And yes, there are trends. But there are actually more similarities than there are differences. So I could look back at the very, very oldest cosmetics that we have any evidence for at all. And in fact, you alluded to them earlier. We have uh, prehistoric mining for ochre. There are actually Neanderthal finds of very, very small shells with blended ochres in, in quantities that don't imply things like wall painting. These are small amounts, you know, you're talking eyeshadow pot. Yeah, you're talking about a a compact. Yeah, a compact. Like like, Um, like my wife has in her purse. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And they are interpreted as for bodily adornment. It may not be Mm -hmm. makeup, it might be wall paint, but you know, it's, this is small quantities where somebody has blended the pigments specifically to give us a, a set shade. Now, fast forward to today, I could walk into any beauty counter on the high street, look at the ingredients in the blushes and the lipsticks, and one of the top ingredients is going to be ochre. We're still using that. 50, 70,000 years on, some things 
have not changed. The way we apply it might have done, but the fact that we're doing it hasn't. And for almost every period in time, we can see that for within the standards of the day, people generally like to be clean. There are some periods where, of course, people aren't hopping into a bath or a shower every day and laundry is a bit trickier. Yeah. But all the evidence is fundamentally, as a species, we would rather be cleaner than dirtier. We yeah. have concepts of beauty, some of which are probably universal, regardless of cultural differences. So, for example, we know that the human eye sees red very clearly and and responds to that so all the fashions where you might add extra red to cheeks or lips to to make yourself what we consider today to be more attractive it's extremely likely that our prehistoric ancestors would have not dissimilar responses they might see it slightly differently sure. because of culture but fundamentally they're going to respond to the same things so yes there are differences there's the whole white lead thing that you mentioned but these things go on for a very long time i mean we think of white lead as being a particularly sort of tudor and 18th yeah. century thing but actually if you look back a tiny bit earlier in history the romans are using it and not only that the romans know perfectly well it's not good for you there's a, a roman writer on architecture who i think is called Propertius, but I wouldn't absolutely swear to that. And he says something along the lines of, why are we making water pipes out of lead? Don't you see what light lead does to women's faces? Surely this isn't right. good for us. They are. They huh. know that this stuff's not good for us. At least some of them knew. Doing it. <laughs> yeah, some of them knew. <laughs> but, but there's, there's it, it is quite a common human thing that a whole bunch of people are doing something really stupid and a few people are saying, actually, that's a bad idea and they just get ignored. It like happens all the time. Yeah. Um, but having worn it, white lead on my own face experimentally, um, you actually stuck I do it on your face. What, oh, I have, yes. I've made, I've made lead from scratch where you hammer out a sheet of lead into a, into a thin roll and you put it in a jar with a bit of vinegar and then traditionally what you're supposed to do is bury the jar in a manure heap. Well, I didn't have a manure heap so it sat on the kitchen windowsill for a while until it grows a white crust and then you powder it up. That's your white lead. And I have worn it as makeup briefly, but I totally get why it works because it completely covers up any little blemishes with a very tiny amount. It's not it's not this clown white that people think it is. Very tiny bit just blurs everything really, really nicely. And as so a redhead, I, I do tend I do tend to into a strawberry the second anybody Gosh. says anything rude to me. So you know, covers up all the blushes, covers up all the freckles. It's a me metallic pigment, so it doesn't sweat off easily. So there you are. You go out partying under all that candlelight and your makeup's still in place at the end of the evening. It works. I can see why they liked it. It's just shame it's going to kill you with time. Yeah. And OK, so it's basically it's the best concealer ever. Mm, it is. It just it just kills you. Um, how How much is a safe dose? Wearing it once or twice is no problem at all. Lead actually okay. crosses the fat barrier into your system relatively slowly. So as long as you're not ingesting it, wearing it a couple of times, particularly over a fatty foundation layer, you're not going to do yourself any serious harm. The difficulty is accumulative. 
you wear yeah. it every day, tiny amounts are getting into your system. We metabolize lead very slowly. If anybody ever gets lead poisoning these days, it takes months for it to clear their system. Yeah. So it's those little tiny, tiny, tiny additions. And it does it does some quite cruel things because in the short term, it will start drying your skin. So you end up needing to use more of the lead to get the same effect right. because your skin gets dry. Then it will start doing things like making your gums blacken and recede from your teeth. And it'll make your breath, breath start to stink. So you need you need more makeup and more potions to cover that oh, up. Oh, God, yeah. Okay. Then it'll start giving you slight delusions or it'll affect your fertility. Now, this is a big problem because a lot of the... Um, women who wore lead fashionably are women who have been married into particular families for their ability to produce sons, heirs, spares, yeah. and all the rest of it. So you knock on onto your fertility and you're, you're no longer the prize wife that you were intended to be. And, and yeah, and eventually it makes you very confused and makes you irrational. There's some thoughts that uh, Elizabeth I was known to be a, difficult in her later years, and that there is some discussion that possibly it was her makeup that was contributing to that. Wow, yeah, it's, it's I'm I'm familiar with the sort of the damage profile you get from heavy metal poisoning generally, um, and so yeah, it's cumulative. You can a little bit every now and then isn't going to do too much harm. It's just. It shows a, a remarkable commitment to uh, finding things out to actually stick it on your face, though. I would, I couldn't do that. I'd be like, I know this stuff is horribly poisonous. So I'm not going to stick it on my face. I do these things, so you don't have to. <laughs> well, do you know, I say that to my students when I'm doing something with a, shall we say, an unusually. Um, what's the word? Uh, not foolhardy, an unusually, <laughs> an unusually bold risk profile. Let's, let's call it that, mm. right? I like, okay, I need to do the experiment because I need to, I need to know for sure. And when I've done the experiment, I can then teach this with a degree of certainty. But there's absolutely no need for the students to do the experiment because yes. it's fucking dangerous. Mm. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, well, kudos to you for your, your commitment to, <laughs> to historical knowledge. Yes, I'll just slather poison on my face. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, okay. Now, one thing I've come across um, a lot at events particularly, and you know, you've had a lot more contact with the public than this sort of thing that I have, is some really astonishingly stupid comments. Um, one, one particular favorite, a friend of mine who's a blacksmith was making nails at a, like a, English Civil War event. So, you know, if you if you have the blacksmith stand, you don't want to be doing difficult blacksmith stuff. You just mm. bash out nails because it's, you know, it's, it's an easy thing to do that looks like proper blacksmithing, which it is. Um, but it's, you know, the crowd being there doesn't get in the way. And and one one tourist sort of says, oh, I see you're making nails. Oh, that's great. But of course, you and I both know we didn't have nails in the 17th century. To which... Yeah. To which the blacksmith replies, no, that's why Jesus fell off the cross. Oh, dear. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> which, he was provoked. <laughs> so, so um, do, any, do any incidents um, spring to mind of that sort of... 
Like, like what, what are the, what are the misconceptions that you just wish didn't exist? A lot of it is that we aren't taught history very logically at school. So an awful lot of people have a very, very poor idea of how things progress and how things change. So they might have done the Vikings or they might have done the Tudors, but very few schools teach this idea of chronology as being very, very gradual and that you don't wake up one day and it's suddenly the the uh, you know the, the age of enlightenment you know this it yeah. takes a very long time to get to these things and that every discovery is based on ways of doing the same thing before that i mean there's the occasional completely amazing thing like the introduction of electric light or something but almost everything else you you don't suddenly wake up one day with metal spears as a as as a new concept those have come from a very long tradition of using stone and bone and antler tipped spears right. as, uh, yeah. things come out of other things so i think most of the misconceptions that the public have are because they've got into their heads that a particular time period has a specific innovation and they've forgotten that something filled that gap beforehand Right. And sometimes, sometimes you're right though that they're they're daft. I can remember standing with a friend at an event once, and everyone was admiring her beautiful new baby. It was all lovely and you know, decked out in appropriate costume. And a member of the public sauntered past and said, "Tut tut, they're letting the side down because we all know they didn't have babies back then." And we, <laughs> we, we would like they were joking. Well, do you know, a, a friend of mine called Liz, who is uh, well endowed in the chess department, was feeding her baby in the time-honoured mammalian fashion, right, when somebody asked her, so what did babies eat in the 17th century? It's like, okay, yeah. boobs are not a new invention. <laughs> um, but, then, but then sometimes, sometimes you know, a question comes... Uh, and it's it makes you think about things in a different way, like mm. like huh like that that sort of coming at it from from no knowledge at all, they sometimes come out with questions which are actually quite profound like, actually i didn't really think about that, and i should and that's what I really love about working with the public, particularly mixed age groups, if you get a family that's got really small children and grannies and toe and things yeah and yeah, the questions they ask might be relatively straightforward in terms of there's probably a, an answer to it. But sometimes the way they ask them does make you think, you know what, I I have never thought about that. I've I've always followed a certain logic and understanding how we got to a particular object or a technique or, or a reason for doing things. And then somebody comes in with a very straightforward question from a totally different perspective and that that's how we learn that's how as as academics we keep on our toes and remember that actually our viewpoint is only one viewpoint amongst many and just because it might currently represent what most academics agree with doesn't mean that there aren't other ways of, of looking at things and family engagement is perfect for that yeah it's great particularly like the really little ones they 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 come out with the 
most extraordinary things. Like, I mean, one kid, we were, we were like letting the children play with the, the swords. And this child was so small and was holding a very broad bladed single handed sword, which for them was like this enormous two handed thing. Right. And it was so wide that they could pretty much hide behind the width of the blade. And so they got it into their head that they use the flat of the blade as a shield. It's like, literally, so somebody tries to stab you and you just stop it with the flat of your blade like that. Because when yeah, it's, when see, it's like... We see superheroes of, do that, don't we? Well, we, we do, we, yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> I was like, actually, you know, maybe that's... that's that, that's not a, It's not a practical thing, but I would just never have thought to even think about that. You know? Yeah. But this, this, this little tiny kid's like, oh, you could use it like this. You could use it like that. And yeah. you, you, you got to... You got to think where if if a small child in the twentieth century, it was the twentieth century when this happened, um, comes up with this, you can bet that little children way back when were coming up with similarly weird ideas that mm. might actually spark other things. Um, okay, speaking of ideas, um, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Oh, oh gosh. Um, let's ha- let's have a silly one. Okay, I'm a great believer okay, in lists. I'm a great believer in okay. convincing myself that I will be efficient if I write a list and I'll say, I'm going to spend an hour doing this and then an hour doing that and then I've got three hours doing something <laughs> else. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work. work at all. No, no I know. Okay, not so from the many, many years ago, I got it into my head that there was not enough hours in the day. So what I was going to do was I was going to get an old-fashioned clock I was going to repaint the dial to show 13 divisions, not 12, and I was going to lose the minute hand so that to my eye, there would be 13 hours in the day. Apply my list and I would immediately get a lot more done. That's genius. That is absolutely (laughs) genius. That's, That's basically the Pomelo method, but on steroids. It is. You know, the Pomelo thing where you have that 20 minute time or something. I, I, that's not my thing at all. Um, But the way I do this, right, I have a whiteboard, right? And anything I absolutely need to do goes on the whiteboard. And the less I want to do it, the bigger it gets written. Ah. So like papers to accountant, meaning sorting through all sorts of accountanty shit and then, right, that gets written like huge, right? So there isn't much room on the board to write other things. And I really want to get that space clear. And the only way I can get that space clear is by doing the thing. So I do the thing and then I get to wipe it off the board and I have this I all like this clear space. I might try I that. I find it very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds a really good way of doing things. But I've had a thought for your, for your clock idea. Um, I'm a bit of a, a watch nerd and the, my current favorite watch is this, um, this thing here, which is, it has, I don't know if you can see it, but it's got, um, the hour hand, the minute hand, the second hand, but it also has a GMT hand, which goes once around the dial in 24 hours. Uh-huh. Right? And so when you're traveling, you can look at the watch and you can set the GMT hand to, for example, home time, which stays the same as you're moving around. And then when you and then you set the, the normal hands to local time. And it's also got a, a bezel around the side so you can, you can have your GMT hand uh, like let's say you have GMT at home and you have like minus five because you're going to the East Coast. So you can just twizzle the bezel round and it will tell you by looking at the GMT hand what time it is in New York, for instance, right? It's great. Love this sort of stuff. But if you took a clock that had just a GMT hand, right? So it goes once round every time mm. the Earth spins on its axis, 
you could put 26 divisions and get yourself two extra hours. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And that way, that way it's, it's, you can, you can see the whole day. You don't have to like think about it. It has to go around twice. It could just be the whole day, (laughs) which I think, I think that would, that would help too. Because you can only get the extra two hours. No? No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Just just don't, just, just don't schedule podcast interviews using that clock because it, other people are not aware of the real time. Um, okay, so is there an idea you actually have in the back of your head that you might want to actually act on? I've always got lots of ideas, but mostly they're just about things I want to explore, things I want to try out, things that I want to make from scratch. None of them at any given moment are very exciting until they start happening. So... Okay. Yeah, there's always, there's always so there is, things going on. It's why I'm never tidy at home. There's always too many projects in progress. Yeah, my, my study goes through periods of tidiness. Like when I get to an end of a project, I tend to tidy up. And then the next project comes in and just makes it messy again. And then when that's done, it gets tidied up. And my workshop's the same. It's like at the moment, it has a, um, I've made a model of a Bronze Age sword which I'm going to one of uh, James Dilly's workshops to cast in bronze in November. And I asked him whether I could make my own model. So it's like my own design sort of thing yeah. based on a British museum um, original. And so at the moment the bench is clean and there's just this wooden sword sitting on it because the project is done. But now of course this afternoon I'm going to go in and I'm just going to make another one and probably another one and another one <laughs> because once you've done one you kind of like, well actually I could tweak it like this and yeah. I could make it like that and adjust it. Um, have you done much bronze casting? A little bit, yeah. Um, any tips? I think mold preparation is key. If the mold isn't okay. good, the casting won't be good. If you can get your mold absolutely right you're going to have far less cleaning up to do at the end so Mm -hmm. the more time and effort you put into getting the model right getting the mold right the actual pouring bit is a function of having enough metal that's hot enough and pouring it steadily that's all over in moments the time you put into getting the mold right is going to really pay off okay that makes sense like it's all in the preparation okay Huh. All right. So my last question, and I asked variations on this question to most of my guests. Somebody gives you a million pounds or whatever um, to spend improving experimental archaeology worldwide or any aspect of that, including, for example, teaching the public or whatever. How would you spend it? Okay. Well, the thing to remember about experimental archaeology is that it attracts a really wide cross-section of people. Yes, there are academics doing it, but there are an awful lot more people who have really good craft skills or have come out of the reenactment community or have come out of the bushcraft community or have come out of traditional skills. And for experimental archaeology to have academic relevance it has to be tied into the wider body of research if you just play around with making a spear for your own benefit that well that's experiential that's that's about experiences it's about building your own knowledge Um, it's very valuable 
But it only really becomes experimental archaeology when you start recording things, you start sharing things, you start putting things in a format where somebody else could revisit it in a few years' time and go, can we replicate this? Does it tie in to the wider body of knowledge? And what do these new finds add to that? That only works if you can get your hands on all the academic literature. Now, Experimental archaeology is getting a little bit better. There are some very good open access journals and you've got the Exarch um, journal and, uh, and as an organisation that's doing amazing work. But almost everything is still behind a paywall. Academic journals right. are behind a paywall. The yeah. average person, unless they have an affiliation, and I'm, I'm panicking about this at the moment because I've just finished my master's. Anytime now, I'm going to lose my academic email address, which means my journal access is going oh, to God. evaporate. Uh, I'm trying desperately this, to get an honorary research I've... fellowship out of somebody just, yeah. to, just to keep my access. So I would put that money into finding ways of making journal access at the very least affordable, if not completely affordable for everybody because it's ridiculous in this day and age with information being so widely available on a global scale that you physically cannot get at some of the experiments the site reports the write-ups the thinking if you don't either pay for access or be associated with a formal academic institution yeah, it's, it's nuts. I mean, when I finished my PhD, I had the same thing. Like, suddenly I had no access to university libraries and stuff. And it's like, but actually I need it more now than I did then, <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, so you would, you would take the money and you would use it to somehow jailbreak all of the academic research that's been done so far. Yeah. So, and what really bothers me is the money is coming from the academic institutions and going to the publishers, but those publishers are not paying the art, the authors. Yes. Yes, completely so, agree. What the hell? <laughs> it's like, I, I, I don't publish any of my stuff in academic journals for this exact reason. It's like, they don't pay you. They expect to get paid. Off they can fuck, frankly. I would much mm. rather put my stuff out where, where my people can find it. So like, all of it, pretty much all of it is available for free somewhere. And if you want it neatly packaged as a book or a course or something, then you pay for it. But the actual information is all out there for free because yeah. that's that way people can, you know, engage with what I'm doing and say, well, actually guy in this bit, you've misread this passage from Fiore and it doesn't say this. It says that, and which means this, which means you're doing it wrong. So I have a look and go, ah, well, actually, but have you considered that is the past participle of this? <laughs> and, and so the discussion continues. Um, Okay, so how would you actually jailbreak the stuff? Because just having money isn't going to do it. Oh, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know whether there are ways to um, subsidize some of the access levels so that it becomes affordable, because I don't have any huge problem with paying a pound or two to view something. But when sure. a lot of these articles are 15 or 20 quid and you don't know whether you need them yet... So and you I have to maybe read a hundred of them to get yeah. anywhere. So yeah. I, I truly don't know exactly how it would work, but there must be ways to either fund a couple of completely new publications that are open access by design and the money is, is mm -hmm. there to 
to enable that to happen because of course people need paying you know they're not saying that yeah. they, the publishing houses don't need money to operate of course they do but maybe there's a way to do that but or maybe there's just a way of getting the the general subscriptions lowered i truly don't know how it would work but something something somewhere needs to happen if we want all the people who are doing this amazing experiential work in all sorts of fields to be able to turn it into academically sound experimental work yeah i think the problem really is that the reason academics don't just post their stuff out for free is because the only way they're going to get to keep their job or get the next job or whatever is if they publish in certain journals. Mm. And that's why they put their work into hock with these journals, which only like in, only people with institutional access have access to. So I think the problem really is in the employment structure in academia. Because if you took that away, then there'd be no reason yeah. for academics to supply these publishing houses with free academic research, which they can then package up and sell out to institutions. So that might be the place to go. Mm. Huh. So maybe use the money to create a journal that is free by design, which is the trick is getting it, get, getting it the sort of status that means if you have a bunch of articles in this journal, you're more likely to get your senior lectureship or whatever. Yeah. That's the trick. Hmm. Tricky. <laughs> so, yeah, not, not, you, you wouldn't just use the money to buy up a whole load of flint. <laughs> oh, tempting, no, tempting. But even, <laughs> even I can't use a million pounds worth of flint. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Sally. It has been lovely to meet you. Um, and I hope one of these days we get to do a bit of actual crafty stuff together because that would be really interesting. That would be a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sally at How Could You Not? You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, as you jolly well should, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Person's Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. I would like to thank the people that make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run the podcast, and without them, I would have quit a long time ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. So that's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join me next time when I'll be talking to David Wagenfeld, who is a fencing coach, creator of the On Guard model for teaching fencing in schools, and the co-founder of Table Mountain Fencing and HEMA um, at, in Fishhook, South Africa. You definitely don't want to miss that, so you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening, and I will see you soon. Mm-hmm.